0: In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Okay, so it's been a couple weeks since um, we um, were talking about Exodus, so let's try to review kind of where we are. Does anyone remember what is the last thing that's happened? So, where's Moses? Where was Moses? Uh,
1: last thing, uh, the Israelites uh, worshipped uh, the golden calf.
0: Right, so Moses was on the mountain. He received the Ten Commandments. And then he came down. He saw the people who were worshipping the golden calf. And who's the one who made the calf for them? Aaron, right, the brother of Moses. And then what happens? So Moses, in his frustration of seeing the people worshipping the calf, he breaks the the tablets that God gave him that had the Ten Commandments. And then
1: he smashes the golden calf and put it in water. Yeah, he
0: smashes the golden calf. He, he mixes it with water and he makes the people drink the water. Okay, and then um, he 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 asks from the congregation, the people, whoever is on his side to come. And they and the Levites are the ones who come. And then they go and they kill the people who are who are like in, the, in like uh, committing sin and worshiping um, the calf. And then God is so angry with the people, he wants to destroy them, okay? But Moses intercedes for them so that he does not destroy them, okay? Um, And then uh, the people at that point, after all that happened, the people were getting ready to move to the next um, location um, on their way now, going to the promised land. This is where God is leading them, okay? So that was chapters 31 and 32. So in chapter 33... There is now a renewing of the covenant. Okay, So God is going to renew the covenant again with the people after they fell away and they were um, worshiping the idol. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Depart and go up from here you and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, to your descendants, I will give it. So again, this is the renewing, right? Because the covenant that was given was exactly this, that God would um, multiply them and he would make give make them to be a mighty nation. And so again, after all this scene that's just happened where the people are sinning against God, but yet God in his, in, you know, he still has the same purpose for them. His purpose is to lead them out of the land of Egypt where they were slaves and to bring them into the land that he promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because this was the covenant that he made with them. Okay, And I will send my angel before you and I will drive out the Canaanite and the Amorite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey for I will not go up in your midst lest I consume you on the way, for you are stiff-necked people. Now, when we read this, it's kind of curious, okay, because he says, I will send my angel before you, but then he says, but I will not go up in your midst, right? Like, I'm going to send an angel, but I will not go with you, okay? So when here God is speaking about sending this angel, okay, so it says there, he's going to guide them there, but the way that he is with them is not as before, okay? Because he is, like there is some separation between him and the people because of the sin that they had committed, okay? He still wants them to go. He still wants to lead them by sending this angel, but it, he says about himself, um, I will not go up in your midst lest I consume you on the way, meaning that God is... Um, is angry with the way that they behaved, the, the actions that they did. And so he is saying that he is not going to go with them, lest he destroy them because of their repeated sin, because of them, them being stiff-necked and stubborn and constantly disobeying God um, all the time. So you see, like, the, the, the tone that God is speaking to them has changed. Like, for instance, instead of him referring to them as my people, he refers to them as the people you have brought out of the land of Egypt kind of like referring them to Moses, the people you have brought out of the land of Egypt instead of referring to them as um, my people this angel that's mentioned here is not the same angel that was mentioned in Exodus chapter 23 Um, in that in that passage when the Lord is speaking about sending an angel you know he, he was speaking about like sending an angel along with his presence, and that he is the one who is with the people, and so on. Here, this is like kind of him distance, dis- distancing himself um, from them. Because in, tw- in Exodus chapter 23, God says about the angel, for my name is in him. Like the angel that is being sent, the the angel that God wants to send with the people in Exodus 23, saying my name is in him. So saying like God is, is present. Right, whereas here God is saying, "I will not go up in your midst, okay, lest I consume you." Um, on the way, um, they lost some kind of blessing—the blessing of His presence. He is still going to do for them what He promised. He is still going to do for them what He promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and fulfill the covenant that He told them. But there is the way that He wanted it to be done. The, 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 the blessing that they were to have received is different now, right? They lost something along with this. Um, you know, in 2 in Timothy 2, verse 13, it says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, he could not deny himself, right? Like, like even when we are faith, faithless, he still is faithful to us because he cannot deny himself, but it doesn't mean that the path is going to be the same path as before. I mean, if you look actually at the whole story of humanity, right? The whole story of humanity is that things have not turned out the way God intended. You know, God did not intend for us to be living in this world the way that we're living in it. He did not intend for the corruption in the world, the sin in the world, and so on. He intended the path that we should be alive in the world as completely different one. So he still found a way through the work of the lord jesus christ and offering us salvation he still found a way to take us to the heavenly promised land the heavenly canaan right the kingdom of heaven he found a way for us but the path is broken like the pathway from where we are to to there is very different than the one that he originally intended the straight path and we're going to see further on when It starts speaking about like the entering of the promised land, which is not going to be in the book of Exodus. It's in the book of Numbers, I think. Um, But uh, the idea of entering the promised land, the people did not want to enter because they were afraid. And so they ended up wandering for 40 years in the wilderness. And this 40 years in the wilderness represents our life, right? It represents the path that we chose to take because we deviated from the will of God that still ended up in the location that God wanted us to be but it was a much more difficult path and and a much longer path and, and, and a path that involved suffering that God did not want us to suffer. And we so we see this here, that because the people chose this, maybe the final outcome is the same in terms of them eventually getting to the promised land, but they lost um, the blessing that of God's presence with them, and, and it, it's going to become a, a more difficult road. God is not with them like like he would have been. Um, from before so our poor choices can make our life difficult even if in the end we say yes we, we have salvation even if the end we get into the kingdom of heaven but i can make a lot of poor choices in my life that makes the path of getting there much harder than it should have been And when the people heard this bad news, I mean, clearly they saw it as bad news. They didn't rejoice at the fact that God was still keeping his covenant or saying that his angel is going to go. They saw the idea that the Lord was not going to be in their midst, and they immediately identified it as bad news. They mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. like They didn't decorate themselves. They were not celebrating or rejoicing. They felt like God had abandoned them. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the children of Israel, You are stiff-necked people. I could come up into your midst in one moment and consume you. Now, therefore, take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do to you. So the children of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments by Mount Horeb. So the people recognized that the sin had a consequence. Um, And uh, God is responding in a way that is appropriate in the moment. So what do I mean by that? God obviously, he has foreknowledge, and he knows the future, and he knows what it is that we will choose to do. But he doesn't prejudge us until we actually have done the things that deserve judgment. Meaning what? Like God knew from the beginning that the people were gonna worship idols, but he didn't punish them for this before it happened, right? Like he could have said, "I know in the future that you are going to do such and such," and so he treats them as idolaters from the very beginning. But he didn't. He said he he waited for them to um, play out what he knew they were going to do, and then he treated them according to their actions, right? Lest anyone say that God is unjust or that He is dealing with us in a way that is. I, you know, is unjust because we, he we have not yet done anything, and he is he is treating us in a way as though we have wronged him. He is actually waiting until the time where this happens, and then he responds. So, whenever remember when we speak about the anger of God, it is not the same kind of anger that we as human beings experience. This anger of God is. To indicate to the people his dissatisfaction with their actions and to make it clear to them that the way that they have behaved is inappropriate, is sin, is wrong. It is not that God cannot contain himself or cannot control himself. It's that God is communicating to them that they need to make different choices and that what they did was sin, okay? Um, So God is asking them to repent, right? And the idea that he gives them this stipulation he gives them this command saying, Take off your ornaments that I may know what to do to you. This is actually a good thing. This means that God has not rejected them completely. Like if God chose, he could have just completely destroyed them. You know? He could have brought fire from heaven and consumed them, destroyed them. The fact that he's still having a conversation with them, the fact that he is still telling them what to do, means there is still some hope for them to take a positive action to help themselves. Right? So so whenever Also, we fall into sin, right? There is self-destructive ways that we can respond to that, meaning we can go into isolation, we can not pray to God, we can feel like we want to kind of um, seek after ways of dealing with our stress and anxiety and so on that actually makes us fall into even more sin. Or we can do positive things that help to alleviate the problem, help to, uh, to, to draw us close again to God, to ask God for his forgiveness, to repent of our sins, um, and so on. So here God is giving them this choice. He's saying, if you want to continue a relationship with me, and you want me to forgive your sin, then demonstrate repentance. And the way here he's telling them to demonstrate repentance is through some type of asceticism, right? Like, yes, they said, okay, like they could have said, we are sorry. They could say, you know, that we have sinned. They said to themselves, like, we are sorrowful because God is not going with us, and they, but, but God wanted them to take some kind of action, right? That action is do not adorn yourselves, do not celebrate, do not, do not go about your day in the normal way that you would go about. And this is a demonstration of the repentance that you are repenting. Like the true repentance, it's, it's not just like words, but it's like we are, we are willing to, to take some kind of step, some kind of action to change and to overcome the sin. Moses took his tent and pitched it outside the camp, far from the camp, and called it the tabernacle of meeting. And it came to pass that everyone who sought the Lord went out to the tabernacle of meeting, which was outside the camp. So what was this tabernacle of meeting? Hm? Like a church where they go pray? Okay. Sacrifice something. So when did God give the instructions for building the tabernacle? On top of the Mount Sinai to Moses. So when Moses was on the mountain, right? And, he, and it was very complicated and required all kinds of materials and artisans and laborers. And, and he gave all these instructions, right? So he, he said all of that to him on the mountain. And then immediately when Moses came down from the mountain that's when he saw the people worshiping the golden calf, right? And then this whole scene happened with the Levites going and killing the people who were sinning, and then all of this rebuke, and Moses interceding for them, and all that. So in all of that, and now here we are right now. So in all of that that happened from the time that God gave the instructions for building the tabernacle, up until this time, how is it that they would have already built the tabernacle?
1: It does say uh, he pitched his, t- his own tent. His, his
0: own tent. tent. Right? So, this was not the tabernacle. This is not the tabernacle that, like, when we talk about the tabernacle with the outer court and the holy and the holy of holies, that's not what this is. Because the word tabernacle means tent, right? So So, this tent was the tent of Moses that he took outside and it became like a worship tent it became like a place where moses would go or the or other people would go to pray to god but it was not yet the formal tabernacle that is still to be built because actually the from chapters 35 through chapters f- uh, 40 all the last five chapters or what is that six chapters six chapters five chapters um, of the book right all of that whole th- that whole part is the actual building of the tabernacle so this has not happened yet okay it has not happened yet So this is the tent of Moses. Um, Moses would go there in order to pray, in order to meet with God, and so also um, other people who sought the Lord would also go. So it was, whenever Moses went out to the tabernacle, that all the people rose, and each man stood at his tent door and watched Moses until he had gone into the tabernacle. And it came to pass, when Moses entered the tabernacle that the pillar of cloud descended and stood at the door of the tabernacle and the Lord talked with Moses so what is the pillar of cloud god but where where like what is it why is it there it was what uh, what was leading the the people
1: through the wilderness during the day
0: so so there's two things leading the people during the day there was this pillar of cloud right and actually if you remember from even when, um, when before the before the the people uh, crossed the Red Sea, God was like protecting them with a pillar of cloud, and at night there was a pillar of fire. So whenever they are traveling, God would be present with them either in the form of a pillar of cloud or a pillar of fire, so that they could always see the presence of God. So this pillar of cloud that is present with the people that is leading them wherever they need to go, came upon this tent. Okay, And it says, the Lord talked with Moses, and we'll see what that means. All the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the tabernacle door, and all the people rose and worshipped, each man in his tent door. So the Lord spoke to Moses face to face, as a man speaks to his friend, and he would return to the camp. But his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, did not depart from the tabernacle. Okay, so what does it mean that God speaks with Moses face-to-face? Because elsewhere it says no one can see the face of God and live. How is it that he could be speaking to God face-to-face?
1: Like it was like a direct dialogue?
0: Direct dialogue, right? It doesn't mean literally face-to-face. It means that when, Moses, when God spoke to Moses, he spoke to him in a clear, distinct, and direct way. Right. It wasn't through some kind of like difficult to interpret visions or some kind of prophecies. Like he spoke to him directly and clearly in a way that he could understand very easily. OK. Also, we see here Joshua. Right. Joshua becomes the leader of all of Israel after Moses dies. And you can see from even and that's still far like that's still much later than this. But you see the beginnings of Joshua's discipleship to Moses. It's very clear. Joshua was one of the people who went up on the mountain with Moses. Joshua is here staying in the tabernacle um, and, and being with Moses all the time. And so he is learning from him. Joshua is walking in the footsteps of Moses. He is observing all that he does and so on. And this idea of discipleship is a very important aspect of Christianity in general and in the church. Because one person learns the faith and learns the right behavior and actions from an elder, from a spiritual father, from someone who is older and wiser and more experienced that we learn from them. And it is through that experience then we are able to do whatever it is that needs to be done. And then we also teach those people who are kind of younger, who are coming and coming after us. So the idea of discipleship is very important. Um, we learn um, a lot of the things even in the faith. Like in the early church, there was the oral tradition. And each of the generations um, of like the early church fathers, they would learn the faith and the tradition of the church from the generation that came before them, right? And every kind of all of the apostolic fathers, they had like their, um, their elders. Like for instance, St. Polycarp, his kind of he was the disciple of St. John the Beloved. Right, Every, Everyone like, learned the faith from someone else. And So here Joshua is learning. This is what makes him to be a very effective leader because he got to see firsthand the way that Moses dealt with things, the way that God spoke with Moses, what is it that w- Moses was doing, um, and so on. Then Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, Bring up this people. But you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name. And you have also found grace in my sight. Now, therefore, I pray if I have found grace in your sight, show me now your way, that I may know you, and that I may find grace in your sight, and consider that this nation is your people. Was it, what is Moses saying here to God? If who's going to save the people? If God's going to like
2: keep the people that are with him, because he says, um, so that I may find grace in your sight and consider that this nation is your people. So there seems to be doubt in Moses on whether or not he's actually going, like God's going to save this nation.
0: Yeah, so because God just said he's not going with them, right? So Moses here is again interceding, right? And he's asking God, he's saying, how is it? that you can tell me to bring up these people to lead these people but then you are saying but I'm not going with you right saying if these people are really your people and you called me to lead these people out then go with us you know that I may find grace in your sight like like do this like he's asking god essentially to forgive the people and so that he will continue with them as originally he intended to do right If God does not accept these people and does not go with them, how is it that Moses will succeed in this mission, right, that God is the one who called him um, to do? So this is what Moses is asking God. And one of the things that we see from people who are very deep in their faith is they discuss things with God and they, if you want to say, argue with him. You know, Pope Shenouda, he would always say, like, when you go and you pray, it's like you, 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 you stand in prayer and you tell him, I am not leaving until you bless me which is the same thing that Jacob said whenever he wrestled with God. The idea that we don't just take at face value, like, okay, God here said, I, I'm not going with you. But Moses did not accept this. He didn't, he didn't just say, okay, you're not going with us, you're not going with us. He kept asking. And the Lord Christ gave the uh, example of the parable of the persistent widow, who was a widow that continued to ask the judge for justice. And the, the kind of the moral of the story Uh, was that if this woman kept asking this unjust judge for justice and in the end he gave it to her simply because he was fed up with her whining, how much more is God, who loves us, going to listen when we persevere and asking him in our prayers? So the thing that Moses had is he believed in God's mercy, that even though God was justified in his reaction and even though the people were stiff-necked people and even though they did... Uh, sin against him and even though they deserved everything that they got and yet moses in his deep faith believed in the true mercy of god and asked god to forgive and to overlook the sins of the people even though he had no reason to have to do so right this was the request that moses made it was a request made by faith remembering the characteristics of god remembering the goodness of god like do not punish us according to our sins and we say this in the liturgy according to your mercy O lord and not according to our sins what are we saying we're saying treat us not according to what we deserve but treat us according to your mercy and this is exactly what moses was doing he knew that god was merciful and he's asking now god to give him his grace yes
2: like forgiveness and all of that because sometimes people pray for things that are not good for them right or something that God might not think is the best for them there's something better that God wants for them you know so where's the actual like guideline for that
0: yes no you're totally right like if, if, if we ask for something that is not in the will of God and something that is bad for us then God is not going to give it to us you know even in the passage where the lord was speaking about you know if a son asks his father for bread will he give him a stone um and he said how much more will will god give the holy spirit to those who ask of him meaning when we ask for something good when we ask for the holy spirit when we ask for the presence of god when we ask something that is that is spiritual like that or something that is the will of god then yes but yeah we shouldn't be pushing trying to push god to give us something that might not be Good for us. So we when when we pray we can ask God for it, but at the same time we're saying, but according to your will. Like we are expressing our desires to God and there's nothing wrong with expressing what we want. But at the same time we are we are saying, But only if this is only if this is according to your will, only if this is good for me and and so on. Yeah, no, I understand what you're asking. Um, we can persevere in asking God for something that we want. but in the, Because the only time that we know whether it really is the will of God is by observing what's happened. Like, le- okay, like let's say, for instance, there is a person who is ill and, you know, maybe terminally ill. And so we're asking God to heal this person. And it's someone that we love. So we feel very strongly about it. And so we keep asking God for it. Now, in the end, do we know if it is the will of God or not? We don't know. So we keep praying, we keep praying, we keep praying until we see what happens. Either that God is going to heal this person or the person is going to die, right? The same thing happened with King David, right? Like when King David, he had a son with Bathsheba. And because of his sin, God said that this child was going to die. But King David kept asking God to forgive him and to save the child. So he kept praying, 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 praying. And in the end, the child died. And that's when he stopped. So there's nothing wrong with persevering in prayer and asking God for what it is that we want while at the same time saying, but according to your will. I don't know. Is this the right for me or, or not right for me? mm-hmm yeah so if we pray to god and we are like asking for something that is not the will of god and we are persistent but not desiring what is god's will and just pushing 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 sometimes and it has happened god can give it something to you that you're asking for even though it is not good because you have asked for it so much almost like as a teachable lesson okay and maybe we've all experienced like we want something and we ask God for it and and we end up getting it and then it's not as good as we thought that it was going to be Um, but even when God does that maybe he does that to teach us something to teach us to let go of our will and to see that even the things that we are think are good are not necessarily as good or you know as, as we thought they were so you know and, and, of course, we also believe that prayer does change the heart of God, but the word change, is we have to look at it from a human, what does it mean to change, right? God, of course, knew what was going to happen all along, but, but he changes in the sense that he listens, okay, and he wants to give us according to what we have requested of him, but it doesn't mean that there was something that he didn't realize or, or know was going to happen. Mm-hmm. Was there a question over here? Okay.
2: But just because Otak said that we like still persist and like we can always still ask for
0: what we want, mm-hmm. so do we still do that? I mean, if we're gonna get something back. But that's what I'm saying is you ask, but you say, according to God's will. Like the point here is that we don't believe that we know better than God, and that's what we do. Like let's say okay, I there's a university and I want to get into this university. And in my mind, this university is the best possible thing and it meets all of my criteria and it's what I want and everything. And so if I don't get it, I get angry at God. And I I say, God, why are you not giving me what it is that I want? That reflects that we believe that we know better than God. So that's the kind of perseverance that's not right. The kind of perseverance that's right is yes, I can ask God and tell him this is what I want. But in the end, we believe that whatever God allows is the best, so it's it's an attitude in the prayer that's reflected in the way we pray and how we pray, but you could be persistent even though you are asking God for something that maybe is not the will of God in the end, but we don't know that, and we're just accepting whatever God allows.
2: For how long? Like, like I, no, like I know people who have been like praying for, like they can't have kids, right? And now they're like well into their 50s, right? and she's still praying for kids and I don't think that's bad like your prayer is your prayer with God right but like at what point are we maybe do we need to shift our focus or pray for something else or like maybe accept that this isn't happening or is it like someone who watered a stick for three years and like it's just going to take three years and then you know if he stopped one day earlier he was never going to see the fruits of that right like I don't know
0: I mean I don't know if there's one answer to that question right um, and it really depends on the situation and there are times where not everybody has the same opinion about it like I, I, I remember a situation where someone was studying um, and they took a test to, to get a certain career and they took the test like 14 times um, And and every time at some point everybody was like okay this is not God's will for you to pass this test like do something else okay and then, like, at the 15th time, they passed. So what is that? Is that God's will? Um, that person felt in themselves like they were so persistent in wanting to continue along that route, not having given up hope that this was the will of God. Um, so, so, but it's a very personal thing. Like, how do you know that you should just give up? How, how do you know that you've actually received the answer no versus the answer wait? Right. And I don't think there is a there is not an easy answer for that question. Right. It's very specific based on the situation. But it doesn't mean that as, for instance, you are, say, (laughs) taking this test this many times that you should not be considering other options because maybe there is other options. Maybe in the case of this person, there wasn't, you know, like like sometimes like we look we should look around and say, okay, are there other options? Maybe God is opening other doors for me and I'm ignoring them because I'm just so focused on the one thing that I want and I am missing the will of God. Or maybe there aren't any other options and there's nothing else for me to even try to pursue, so I might as well keep going, right? Every situation is is different. But I think the, the principle is that, that, we, that we persevere in asking God for what is good. And we, we even ask God, if this is not good, then I don't even want to ask for it anymore. It's the intention. The idea of we knowing better than God is when the problem happens. Yes.
2: I have a question in terms of like your will versus something that I've kind of heard is people saying like my parents will. Like they w- their parents want them to do something and they think that through following their parents they're following God's will. Do you think this is true because this is something that I think personally uh, I struggle with.
0: You know, this is a loaded question. (laughs) Um, There are a lot of times where God expresses his will to us through people. And parents are a a big one, right? Because God has placed us in the care of our parents all growing up. And our parents know us very well. Our parents understand our personality very well. And God uses our parents to show love to us. And that's clear in all the ways that God loves us through our parents for years and years and years, and even as adults. Um, so a lot of times it is the case that maybe God communicates to us through, uh, through our parents in the sense that, like, let's say there's a certain path that I want to go and my parents are not comfortable with it. And they feel like this isn't right for you. I should take that seriously. Like, I should, I should think and really pray and say, is this a sign from God that this isn't right for me? But it doesn't mean that our parents are infallible either. Like it doesn't mean that because my f- my parents are not comfortable with a specific thing that that means that's definitely not right. Because everybody has a different path, has a different um, personality. Um, maybe our, our parents like don't un- fully understand something that is what I'm wanting to do. So I, I d- wouldn't consider it to be like, okay, like that's the rule. But if your parents disagree with something, that means that's wrong, no. But I would say, give it a lot of weight to to really take it seriously and and because for us to discover the will of god a lot of things have to happen like it's not just one thing like it's not just god give me a sign if you want me to do this because that could just be a random coincidence right it is many things together right like okay um how do yes, maybe how do my parents feel? How do how do I feel? How does my father confession feel? How do my friends feel about it? Are all the circumstances lining up so that this becomes kind of a smooth uh, like a, a like a smooth decision that's gonna bring me a lot of positive things, you know? Or is it filled with obstacles and confusion and pain and and it does it's not going smoothly and so on? So like those are things to consider, right? So I would say like the parents are one data point and maybe a strong data point but it's not the only data point. It's not the only thing I'm going to consider and look at and say, okay, well, if my parents disagree with it, then that's 100% not right. But I would take it seriously, especially if it's related. Like, if there's, like, a moral issue, you know, like – like, definitely t- take that seriously. Like, maybe my parents see, like, this is immoral, like this decision that I'm trying to make. Definitely take that seriously. But if it's just a morally neutral question, it's like, should I take this job or that job? Should I live in this city or that city, you know? Those kinds of things, it's like, okay, well, maybe I have a certain feeling toward it, but it doesn't mean that that feeling is, it's not like necessarily that this is God communicating me through that, but I should I should listen and take it seriously, but consider everything, no. And he said, my presence will go... So this is the response. This is God's response to the prayer that Moses prayed. You know? He said, um, g- give me, l- let me have grace in your sight. And he's asking God to be with him and all of that. So now this is what he responds. He says, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Then he said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. Right? One thing that we see, again, is the faith of Moses. That he, that he challenged God, if you want to call it that. like He didn't just accept that God said this. He challenged him and he said, no, I want you to go with us. I don't accept the idea that you're going to, because you asked us to go here. You brought us up to go here, and I want you to be with us. And if you are not with us, then I don't want to go. Right? This also demonstrates the humility of Moses. You know, Moses was a very, uh, you know, m- Moses was a very prominent leader. He was highly respected by the people. And he never felt in himself that um, he's able to do this on his own. Like, he never felt kind of puffed up in himself that it's like, I have the experience, I have the knowledge, I know what to do, the people look up to me. No, he said, If God, if you're not going to go with us, I can't go. Like, we can't go at all if you do not go with us. And if you compare that to us, maybe sometimes like when we have the smallest accomplishment, we get like puffed up in ourselves or we have the smallest praise from someone. We begin to think that we can do things kind of without the grace of God, without the help of God. Um, Moses here, uh, he sees himself as being so little that if God is not present with him, he won't even attempt to do it. He says what? If your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. Like, there's no point in even us continuing this journey, God, unless you are with us. He's not satisfied with the angel that God said is going to go. He says, no, you have to be with us um, as the original plan. For how then will it be known that your people and I have found grace in your sight, except you go with us? So we shall be separate, your people and I, from all the people who are upon the face of the earth. So the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing that you have spoken, for you have found grace in my sight, and I know you by name. Again, this is an example of the intercession of Moses. You know, God relents from what he was thinking and from the course of action that he wanted to do because he hears the prayer of Moses, and he has, like, Moses has such favor because of his his obedience, because of his uh, submission, because of his humility. That God hears him, and He is like speaking to him as a friend. He's speaking to him as someone who is so uh, influential, right? When we ask for the intercession of the saints, it's because these people are so influential in the eyes of God that we ask them to pray for us. We ask them to intercede for us, um, and so this prayer, that Moses' prayers, is really an amazing example of intercession and 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 seeing how jo- how God changes. Again, we're going to use that in quotes changes his mind um, regarding what he was going to do. In uh, Psalm 103, it says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. And this is what is in the mind of Moses. Moses. He knows that God is merciful and gracious, abounding in mercy, so that even though God is angry in the moment, but he will not remain angry forever. And so he is, he is he's coming to God even in the midst of this, and he's asking for the grace of God, and God hears and responds. So then Moses responds, and he says, Please show me your glory. Then he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face for no man shall see me and live. So back again to what it said before that God spoke with Moses face to face. It didn't mean literally because here he's saying it. You cannot see my face like we cannot see directly God. Actually, the angels themselves do not see God the father. They cannot see him because no one can perceive the glory and the majesty of God. And this is what makes the incarnation of Christ such a big deal. And why actually the Lord Jesus Christ says that we see the Father through him. How is it that we see the Father? We see the Father in the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, and the Lord said, here is a place by me and you shall stand on the rock. So God is going to show him more of his glory because Moses asked. And so God is telling him now stand on this rock. So it shall be while my glory passes by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and i will and will cover you with my hand while i pass by then i will take away my hand and you shall see my back but my face shall not be seen now of course you know we don't take this literally as the back and the front and what what he's saying is is that i'm going to give you a glimpse of me okay but not the fullness of me not the essence of me i will show you something right but I will, I will guard you so you do not see everything. Because if you see the fullness of God, you cannot live. Okay? So there is this divine friendship. Father Tadros Malati, he says about this, he says, Moses dared to ask God for what nobody before has dared to ask. As his heart was kindled with divine love, he yearned to see God as he is. He wished to see the incomprehensible and to perceive the imperceptible. Right? Moses is asking to see the glory of God and to to see it um, is, is like unable to be perceived by human wisdom or human effort. Only God can reveal. Only God can reveal himself to us so that we can see him. In John chapter one, it says, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten son who is in the bosom of the father, he has declared him. We cannot see God. We cannot perceive God. We do not know him except through the Lord Jesus Christ, to make himself known to us to be able to see him. So the only way we have access to the Father is through the Son, and that is why in the incarnation we have such a glimpse of God in a way that no, no, no other time before we were able to see him. Yes. because he is too he's too great like he's too great to be gazed on right he there's no way for us to to comprehend him that if we were to see him it would be too overwhelming to us even to the angels even to any spirit to be uh, like th- that's why it says that the angels even cover their eyes so they cannot see god right so it it it, it's, it goes to god's um, immense and infinite glory that cannot be perceived Cannot be understood, cannot be comprehended, and anyone who tries to look on God would simply die, unable to to live in seeing like that overwhelming condition. You know, even in the book of Revelation, when when Saint John the Beloved was seeing even the visions of heaven, you know, it's like he, he got sick. He couldn't he couldn't per- he couldn't like c- perceive or comprehend all the things that he saw. So we, as limited creatures, cannot like. See the unlimited God and perceive him. And that's why. Not even in heaven. No. Not the Father. We can see the Son. That's the thing. is We see the Father through the Son. So in heaven we will see the Lord Jesus Christ and we can gaze upon him and look upon him just as the people on earth saw him. But not the Father. You cannot see the Father. Even in heaven. Yeah. Glorified bodies and uh, all that. That's right. Mm-hmm. Because again, even the angels cannot. Even now, right? The angels cannot. The angels who are in heaven. But wasn't that what happened in the garden? Right? Like Adam and Eve experienced God. God God appears in a form that we can see him. Mm-hmm. But he doesn't show us his essence of who he actually is in his fullness and his full glory. Right. Like God can make uh, God can make some kind of like appear to to a person in a form, but that's not really the, the, the fullness, right? The fullness of God. That's just uh, like an apparition, if you want to call it that, an appearance of God, but not who he actually is. Yeah. Yes. Um, okay,
2: I'm not sure if this is a silly question, but would you not experience the Father and the Holy Spirit in heaven?
0: I didn't say you don't experience them, right? I'm not saying that you don't experience them. I'm saying you cannot look upon them. You cannot look upon the Father specifically, okay um, for instance, when people heard the word the the words of the Father right like when the when the Lord was baptized, people heard a voice saying, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased right That voice is the voice of the Father, right so it's not that we cannot interact with him in any way and even here when moses was seeing god it says he saw the back of god like in the sense that he saw part he saw something like a partial vision of god but he did not see the full essence of god so i'm not trying to say that like god is locked away somewhere and we don't see him or we know don't know him what i'm saying is that we cannot see him in his full essence even the angels that carry the throne of god were carrying the throne right of god and yet they still do not gaze upon his essence okay so I don't know if I can explain it in any more clear way because I don't myself understand it t- any more than that. Um, just to say that it's clear from the Scripture that God cannot be seen directly. But we can perceive him in other ways. We can see him in, a, in a, like, a, like a partial kind of apparition appearance of how he chooses to appear to us but not in his essence of who he actually is. And the Lord said to Moses, Cut two tablets of stone like the first ones, and I will write on these tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. So he's going to remake the tablets of the Ten Commandments. So be ready in the morning, and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai, and present yourself to me there on the top of the mountain, and no man shall come up with you, and let no man be seen throughout all the mountain. Let neither flocks nor herds feed before the mountains. He's telling him the same thing, as the first time. Go back up to the mountain. The difference now is that he is the one who is actually cutting the tablets. Kind of like saying, Moses, you broke the tablets, you have to bring the new tablets. The first time he didn't tell Moses to bring any tablets. God just gave him the tablets already with the commandments on them. Now he is saying, you make the tablets, you cut the tablets out of stone, and you bring them with you. He cut the two tablets. Moses rose early in the morning, went up to Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded, and he took in his hand the two tablets of stone. Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children, To the third and the fourth generation. Okay, so God is saying about Himself that He is merciful; He accepts the repentance of the sinners, but at the same time, He is also just and punishes the wicked. Okay, and then there is this verse here where He's speaking about visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children. Okay, and this um, we have discussed this before, um, in the light of what the Lord said in uh, Ezekiel. Uh, chapter 18 where he says essentially each soul is judged according to his own deeds. In Ezekiel 18 verse 4 it says behold all souls are mine the soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine the soul who sins shall die meaning the one who is the sinner is the one who is responsible for the sin. But the idea that the iniquity of the fathers is visited upon the children and the children's children and all of that is speaking about how the chil- how sins of the father or the, how the sins of the ancestor affects the, the, the children, right? So, for instance, like if you have someone who is not a God-fearing person, they are not going to raise their child to be God-fearing. And so when the child grows, that person is not going to naturally be, um, you know, seeking to do the will of God because they were never raised to do so. And so they, by their very nature, might, have, uh, might be living in a life of sin. So they inherit the bad situation that was created by the parents. It doesn't mean that the parent created, like, committed a sin, and so he's going to punish the child for the sin of the parent. It means that the the consequence of the sins of the parent includes affecting the child. You can think of a situation, let's say, like where a, a pregnant mother is a drug addict, and so she uh, is taking drugs while she is pregnant, and so when the child is born, he is a drug addict. He is addicted to the to the drugs that mother was taking so the child didn't do anything wrong but he is affected by the sin of the mother so the idea that the the the, the, the ancestors sin is affecting the lives of the descendants but um, if you read in ezekiel chapter 18 it makes it very clear that god only punishes the person who sins and not um and not the this children I myself, when I read it, like the kind of the the first impression that you get when you read it is it makes it sound like God is the one doing some kind of action. Um, but I, I, that's not what it means. I can't say I know why it's written this way. You know, forgiving the iniquity and transgression and sin by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children. I think what it means is that because the children are living in a life of sin because they learned this from the father so that he will also punish them so essentially saying like like let's say god is saying to me if you do not live a life of holiness then your children also will not learn to live lives of holiness and not only will i be punished but actually all of my descendants will be punished because of their sin you know so it's he's not saying i'm just i'm going to I'm going to punish them for no reason. I'm just going to punish them because their father sinned. No, I'm going to punish them because they sinned as a result of my sin. That's what it's trying to say. So Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. Then he said, if now I have found grace in your sight, O Lord, let my Lord I pray, go among us, even though we are stiff necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us as your inheritance. So you see here also the faith of Moses. He's saying, We are stiff-necked people. Like that's who we are. We are stiff-necked people. But forgive us our sins and still take us as your inheritance. Like when we say to God, God, I am a sinner, after we pray the prayer saying, God, I am a sinner doesn't mean that suddenly we're not sinners anymore. We are still sinners and we are still have weaknesses and we are still going to sin against God despite the fact that we are sinners we are still asking God to have mercy on us so it's not saying i have now suddenly completely changed and i'm no longer a sinner and i will do everything perfectly so accept me no he's saying i am a sinner and i will continue to be a sinner not not as a not in a stubborn rebellious way but just as a realistic understanding of we are human beings are are weak So we are asking God to have mercy on us continually because we are continually sinners and we're asking God continually to have mercy. And so here Moses is saying to God, yes, we are a sinful people. We are a sinful people, but go with us. Be among us. Pardon our iniquity and our sin. And he said, behold, I make a covenant. Before all your people, I will do marvels. Such as have not been done in all the earth, nor in any nation, and all the people among whom you are shall shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Now look at this. Look at the way that God even is speaking and how it's so different from it was at the beginning. At the beginning, he was like saying, I'm not going to go with you. You're a stubborn people. He doesn't even want to call them my people. He says the people whom you brought out of Egypt. And even the language is reflecting kind of his dissatisfaction about what they've done. But now after the intercession of Moses, it is like the what I will do with you is going to be greater than anything that I've ever done with any people ever. And that the people are going to see the work of God in you for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. It's like a complete 180, completely different, the way that God is, is seeing them. Observe what I command you this day. and And, and note, the people haven't done anything yet. Like the people, all they did is he told them, don't put on your decorations, and they didn't put on the decorations. But all of this was through the intercession of Moses, right? All this change was from the intercession of Moses. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I am driving out from before you the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. Take heed to yourself, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land where you are going, lest it be a snare in your midst. So he's warning them. When you go into the promised land, which I am giving you, do not interact with the other nations that are there. Do not make covenants with them. Do not make treaties with them. Do not socialize with them. Do not interact with them in any way. Because if you do so, then they will be a snare. They will lead you into idolatry. They will lead you away from me because they are pagans. But you shall destroy their altars, break their sacred pillars, and cut down their wooden images. For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. When God refers to himself as jealous, it means that he does not want his people to worship any other God. It is like a monogamous relationship between God and the people. Only worshiping God alone, not worshiping anything else. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land and they play the harlot with their gods and make sacrifice to their gods and one of them invites you and you eat of his sacrifice and you take of his daughters for your sons and his daughters play the harlot with their gods and make your sons play the harlot with their gods. You shall make no molded gods for yourselves. Right? So he tells them what they should not do do not make any treaty of peace with any of these nations. Um, But sadly, um, they disobey this. Okay, And and, and actually, the book of Judges. In the book of Judges, chapter 2, this is where after the people have entered into the promised land and they conquered a lot of the nations that were there and they had many, many victories, and then at some point they began to feel complacent they began to feel like okay we are strong we have conquered many of the nations why should we keep going out and killing more of these nations why don't we make use of them why don't we subvert them why don't we make them submit to us and they can be our servants and they can work for us and and they can they can benefit us so why should we get rid of them completely right and actually because of this Okay, it says, this is in Judges chapter 2, it says, Then the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I led you up from Egypt and brought you to the land which I swore to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? Therefore, I also said, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall be thorns in your side and their gods shall be a snare to you. So it was when the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the children of Israel that the people lifted up their voices and wept. So the command that God is giving here to them about how to behave and what to do with the nations, right? if you fast forward to the book of Judges, he reminds them of this command, and they disobeyed. They didn't do what God asked them to do. And from a spiritual perspective, what does these nations represent? the nations that were in the promised land represents sin. They represents the sins that we cling to, that we don't want to get rid of them, that we kind of are comfortable with them being there. They bring us some kind of joy or comfort or pleasure, and so we do not want to fight to remove those sins, but we try to cohabitate with them. We try to say that I will, be, I will follow God, while at the same time I have these relationships with sin that I keep in my life, while at the same time I am following God. So this is what the people did, right? They, they said we are worshiping God, but at the same time we are tolerating the, the paganism, we are tolerating these nations who are here because we benefit from them in some way. The Feast of Unleavened Bread. So now he is going to essentially all the stuff we're about to read is stuff he's already said. He is reviewing again everything that he said to them from before, before the whole worshiping of the golden calf. He is reminding them again of it. it. says, the feast of the unleavened bread you shall keep. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread as I commanded you in the appointed time of the month of Abib. For in the month of Abib you came out from Egypt. He said this before. All that open the womb are mine, and every male firstborn among your livestock, whether ox or sheep. But the firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, and if you will not redeem him, then you shall break his neck. All the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem, and none shall appear before me empty-handed. Again, he said all of this before about making the offering of the first fruit. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest you shall rest. This is the Sabbath. And you shall observe the feast of weeks of the first fruits of harvest and the feast of ingathering at the year's end. Three times in the year, all your men shall appear before the Lord, the Lord God of Israel. So before he was telling them what not to do, meaning stay away from the pagans, do not interact with them and so on. And now he's telling them what they should do. He is reiterating the feasts, the Sabbath day, the sacrifices that they are to make um, and so on. For I will cast out the nations before you and enlarge your borders. Neither will any man covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in the year. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leaven, nor shall the sacrifice of the feast of the Passover be left until morning. Again, he is talking about the bread should, not, should be unleavened, representing that it is spotless without sin. The first of the first fruits of your land you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat and its mother's milk. Again, this is reiterated command from before. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write these words, for according to the tenor of these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant The Ten Commandments. I think I mistakenly before spoke about the amount of time that Moses was on the mountain as the 40 days. It's actually, this is the 40 days, the second time that he goes up. Now it was so when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand when he came down from the mountain, that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone while he talked with him. So as God was in, as Moses was in the presence of God, his face began to shine. And Moses was unaware that this was the case. So when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. Okay? Actually, even in our day, there are certain very holy people um, whose face uh, will shine because of their closeness to God. And you can see it in their face that it's like illuminated um, because of their relationship with God. Then Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the rulers of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the children of Israel came near, and he gave them as commandments all that the Lord had spoken with him on Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil on his face to cover his face so people would not see the shining. But whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would take the veil off until he came out, and he would come out and speak to the children of Israel, whatever he had been commanded. And whenever the children of Israel saw the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone, then Moses would put the veil on his face again until he went in to speak with him. Okay? so the next chapters after this 35 36 37 38 39 and 40 the six chapters um, are all related to the actual construction of the tabernacle and so it will reiterate kind of the instructions that god gave for the various parts of the tabernacle and it will also mention the people who are the artisans and the craftsmen that are going to build and construct um, all of those things and essentially that is the, the last part of the book. So God willing, um, we'll try to go through that part um, and try to highlight anything new that we haven't already kind of discussed. And then after that, we'll be done with um, the book of Exodus. Any questions before we conclude? For verse
1: 26, it's kind of like a very trivial thing. Verse 26, That's uh, I recall that's the reason why Orthodox Jews wouldn't eat cheeseburgers.
0: The first or the first.
1: You cheeseburgers. Not boil, you should not boil young goat in its mother's milk.
0: Is that what they do with cheeseburger? Oh, because the cheese is. Uh,
1: like they, they wouldn't put their products with meat. But I, I
0: think this is intended to be specifically the mother of that goat, and and actually I don't, we don't eat goat burgers. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I've never heard that before. Maybe. Okay, let's pray. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. We thank you, O Lord, for this day and for the opportunity to read your word and to understand it and to see how to apply it in our lives. We thank you, O Lord, for the example of your servant Moses who was faithful and humble before you and sacrificed his entire life to serve you and to serve the people and how you listened to his prayers and his intercessions. We ask, O God, that you hear our prayers and that you grant us a faith to know the depth of your love and mercy on us and that even though we are sinners, that we come before you and ask for your mercy and ask that you forgive us of our sins and have patience with us that even though, O Lord, that we walk in, in sin and yet you restore us again to yourself. Help us to walk away, O Lord, from all the sources of sin and to purify our minds and to sanctify us, to transform us through the work of the Holy Spirit and to make us, O Lord, to be Christ like in all things. Help us to fulfill your commandments and to be joyful, O Lord, for the salvation that you have given us. Help us, O Lord, to benefit from this coming month of preparation for the feast of the Incarnation, your blessed Nativity, to remember, O Lord, all the benefits that you have given us, all the blessings, O Lord, you have given us, and the life and the salvation that you have offered to us, O Lord, through your Son. We thank you, O God, for your goodness, for your mercy, for your patience, for every good thing, O Lord. We ask, O God, that you bless the church, all the church in the world, to be a place of salvation for those people who see it and come in, O Lord, and to benefit from your life-giving death. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, hears us as we pray, thankfully. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done